Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Martin Chemnitz in Caridia. And we're going to be picking up on page 93. And we are in the topic of election. With God's good grace and favor, we may even finish it today. We'll see. And be on to good works and new obedience. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so in some ways, question 184 is, evokes an answer of summary. So let's revisit this question. What then is the true and proper use of this doctrine of predestination? And what is its fruit or usefulness? Now, last week we looked at points one and two. And point one, in summary, is that the doctrine of predestination or election excludes merits because you were elect by God before you did anything. Two is similar. It excludes will. You were chosen by God before your will even was a thing. So that is a bit of an oversimplification to be sure, but nonetheless accurate in terms of grasping points one and two. Now, point three is where we pick up with the new material. This doctrine supplies very sweet comfort, for it teaches that our conversion, justification, and salvation was so much in the mind and heart of God that before the foundation of the world, he took counsel and determined and preordained how he wanted to call, lead, and preserve us unto that salvation. This is where, again, if you take this to heart, you'll see that there are no accidents. There is no chance. There's no such thing as luck. God has ordained things to work for the good of those who love him. He has ordained things to work for your salvation. And that is his eternal purpose being made known to you in time and space. So I've got this great quotation from the book of Concord here. This eternal election of God is to be considered in Christ and not outside of or without Christ. For in Christ, the Apostle Paul testifies, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. As it is written, he has blessed us in the beloved. However, this election is revealed from heaven through the preaching of his word. When the Father says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. Christ says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Concerning the Holy Spirit, Christ says, He will glorify me. Sorry, my note's in the way. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
So the entire Holy Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, directs all people to Christ as to the book of life in whom they should seek the Father's eternal election. For this has been decided by the Father from eternity, whom he would save, he would save through Christ. Christ himself says, No one comes to the Father except through me. And again, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. So again, to find out if we're amongst the elect, we don't look into the hidden will or counsel of God. We don't try to take an elevator up to heaven and figure out if our names are there in the book of life. We listen to the preaching of God on earth that directs us to his son, Jesus Christ, and the certainty we have of salvation in Christ, full and free. And you can even look to the particulars. This, again, is where the devil would try to deceive you into thinking otherwise, but God has had you born into a particular family, into a particular time, into a particular place, the circumstances through which he has brought you to faith. Or, if you're not yet there, the circumstances through which he is calling you to faith in Christ, that you may be sure of his love and sure of his election. So, again... Point three here on page 93, this doctrine supplies very sweet comfort. It teaches that our conversion, justification, and salvation was so much in the mind and heart of God that before the foundation of the world, he took counsel and determined and preordained how he wanted to call, lead, and preserve us unto that salvation. All right, point four. Though Satan stalks our salvation in baffling ways and the world abounds in infinite offenses, our flesh likewise is both weak and evil, the doctrine of predestination gives us the infinite comfort that the things that pertain to our salvation are built on the sure and immovable foundation of the eternal purpose of God. And just put a finger there. So a a very helpful, very comforting meditation here is that the bedrock of your existence is your election in Christ Jesus. That means that no matter how many sins you've fallen into, no matter how great those sins, no matter how frequent those sins, they are accidental to who you are. They are not the essence of who you are. They are not the bedrock of your being or the bedrock of your existence, which is who you are, predestined, ordained, and elected by God to be his son or daughter for all eternity. So whatever else has happened to you or that you have brought upon yourself is incidental, accidental, can be washed away, and in fact is washed away in the blood of Christ, restoring you to what you have always been and will be on account of God's Preordination, his predestination, his election. Wonderfully, beautifully comfort, comforting. Okay, so just picking back up where we left off. For our salvation does not lie in our hand, whence it might be easily taken from us, but rests in the overruling hand of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ out of which no one will be able to snatch us. 
provided we steadfastly and faithfully cling to him and remain in him. Some scripture references given. Thus, Paul draws those most beautiful and sweet consolations from the article of predestination. And again, Paul here cited in Romans and in 2 Timothy. The point being that God loves us so much he hasn't left salvation in our hands, which would truly be a weak thing to do. And as Luther says, it negates God's ability to make a promise. If it's left in any respect contingent upon us, then how can God promise it? We can't be sure and certain for our part. In fact, the history of our lives shows our uncertainty and our instability and our unfaithfulness. So God's ability to promise excludes our contingency. God loves us so much he's taken salvation out of our hands. He's given it to us as a free gift, and he's promised that he has made us elect. Okay, now what's this other bit? Well, the sinful nature will grab a hold of that and then use that in a perverse way, as we've seen before and thought about before and over the course of these previous pages. The sinful nature will grab a hold of the doctrine of election and say, okay, well, then I can just go sin and do whatever I want and live scandalously and reject God and still be elect if I'm elect or not elect if I'm not elect, so it just doesn't matter kind of logic. But it's exactly that kind of logic that flows from the fallen human nature, and it's that kind of logic that the devil incites in us in order to deceive us from the pure speech, the pure word of God considering our election. So if we get deluded and distorted in those things, well, we can certainly fall away from God's grace. As Jesus himself says in the parable of the sower, they believe for a little while and then fell away. Or as Paul says of Hymenaeus and Alexander, that they made shipwreck, not of their non-faith, but of the faith. So they have fallen away. And of course, the whole idea of apostasy is to fall away from one standing in Christ. So we are warned of these things, and we're warned not to allow the doctrine of election to be abused by our sinful nature, by the devil's logic, but rather to cling to it as faithful children of God. He said it, he does not lie, I believe it. Okay, let me pause there before we go on to five and see if you have any reflections. Hopefully it's all making some sense and of of good comfort. On to five then. How much comfort one may draw under the cross and in storms of temptation from this doctrine. Paul teaches, Romans 8, 28 and following, namely that God in his purpose before the foundation of the world predetermined and predestined. This is so important. By what afflictions and tribulations He wanted the individual elect to be conformed to the image of his son. And that for each one, his cross would be for a help to good. Namely, because they have been called according to the purpose of God. That is, that God in his eternal counsel, before the foundations of the world were laid, graciously foreknew and determined what and how much of cross and salutary afflictions 
It was his will to lay on each one. Quick caveat, which means that not all crosses are the same. And not all crosses are equal. And some people have it easier than others. Plain and simple. And over against the egalitarianism of our age, which distorts just about everything. Continuing, and at the same time, he determined the result of temptations before this world began and arranged them to serve this purpose. This is what I mean when I sometimes say that after the fall, God redesigns the world to call men back to himself. It's not like this creation is devoid of God's fingerprints and intention. God's intention has shifted now to the calling of men to repentance. And when we do repent, then it doesn't stop. Hey, I repented. Why hasn't my life gotten magically better? Why am I not living my best life now? Why do I still struggle in my workplace and family and health and all the other things we struggle with? And the answer is because in the first place, God is calling you to repentance, to be reconciled to him in Christ Jesus. In the second place, God is going to continue to use these crosses, afflictions, and sufferings for the purpose of conforming you into the image of his son. That's why it doesn't stop. That's why when you say, okay, so everyone, everyone who's a Christian instantly becomes a millionaire or something, and it's obvious that our whole lives are just puppy dogs, rainbows, and butterfly kisses. It's not the case. And it's not the case intentionally because the Father is not satisfied that we merely repent and be reconciled, but that he impose upon us a glory that is so great we would never choose it for ourselves. That's the glory of Christ and him crucified, Christ and him risen, the one humbled that he might be exalted. And we are shaped and conformed into that very pattern. That's the language of taking up your cross from the lips of Jesus and following me. Conformed into his image means your sufferings are your cross, likened after his sufferings and his cross. Okay, so that's the second phase then. Once God has used the fallenness of this world and the curse that he imposes upon it to bring us back to him in Christ Jesus, he continues to use these things like a potter uses his hands to shape and form the clay to make a vessel worthy of his abundant graces. So just kind of picking back up there about three, four lines from the top, he determined the result of temptations before this world began and arranged them to serve this purpose that all things work out for good and salvation for those who love him. And hence, Paul finally concludes with resolute and confident mind, I am therefore sure that neither affliction nor distress nor height nor depth, etc., can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. But in all these things, and that is the key word, in, not getting out of all these things, not being rescued from all these things, but in all these things, we overcome through him who loved us, etc. And this is the very sweet and great comfort of the pious under the cross 
drawn from the doctrine of predestination. In fact, just to amplify that point all the more, it is only sons whom a father disciplines. And it is only sons whom the father loves that he disciplines. And that earthly example is used by the Holy Spirit to draw us into the reality of of our Heavenly Father, that he disciplines us because he loves us, and his discipline is evidence of his love. So to be under the scourgings, that's the exact language the scriptures use, to be under the scourgings. Why Why that language? Because that's the language used for Christ in his passion. Under the scourgings of the Father, we are conformed into the image of his beloved Son, but also he is showing us the same love he showed to his Son. That's where it's true that under the cross, you can be certain of God's love. Under the cross, you can be certain of his eternal purposes for you and that he desires a greater for you, a glory greater for you than you desire for yourself. Okay, so I hope that um, of, all the, uh, <laughs> of all the paragraphs here in this section on election, uh, this is the one to take most to heart and spend the most time dwelling on and meditating upon because it is a theological lochi that as you absorb it will change your whole perception of the world, your whole perception of God, your whole perception of life. And it takes some time to understand it. It certainly takes some time to grow into it. And as you live it and you experience it, it's not to say it gets any easier, um, but it is nonetheless true and helpful. And uh, really, you go from blindness to sight by grasping this. So the Book of Concord has this wonderful statement in it that's very much a summary of this. So again, this is all in Article 11, God's Eternal Foreknowledge and Election. Furthermore, this doctrine provides glorious consolation under the cross and amid temptations. And temptations, of course, ultimately like temptations to apostatize, like onfectung uh, is the German, and tentatio is the Latin, these kinds of temptations. Not merely temptations to sin. It's true enough that that's a subset of it, but the real point... when when we're understanding like temptations in the proper sense, is that temptations to sin are like anteing in the poker game. It's like, okay, now you have to play. It's enough that he got you, that's true, but now the real damage is going to be done in others, in yourself, in your thoughts, on and on. Okay, your conscience. So, Glorious consolation when we're under the cross and amid temptations. In other words, God in his counsel before the time of the world determined and decreed that he would assist us in all distresses. He determined to grant patience. Ha! May he grant us more. Give consolation, nourish and encourage hope, and produce an outcome for us that would contribute to our salvation. Also, Paul teaches this in a very consoling way. He explains that God in his purpose has ordained before the time of the world by what crosses and sufferings he would conform every one of his elect to the image of his Son. His cross shall and must 
work together for good for everyone because they are called according to God's purpose. Therefore, Paul has concluded that it is certain and beyond doubt that neither tribulation or distress, neither death nor life, or other such things will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In fact, as we've been discussing, it's pretty much the opposite. They confirm for us and draw us ever further into his love. Yeah, so really helpful things in in terms of when you're suffering cross and affliction, it's not because God hates you. It's because God loves you. When you're feeling overwhelmed, you have to understand that even that overwhelming feeling is for your good because God's going to expand you and grow you to the point where this thing doesn't overwhelm you anymore. So you start to recognize, well, it's overwhelming, it's out of control, it's beyond my capacity. The thought you want to have is, but this is ordained before God, before the foundation of the world, and he set its bounds and limits. And he's laid it upon me that I might grow into it and overcome it, not that I might be tortured and put to an end by it, you see? So you begin to perceive a limit to the sufferings that we endure and a purpose behind them. And if, if one is thoughtful enough, introspective enough, open to God enough, one can see his work in our lives, even th- in and through the most painful things. Frequently, in and through sinful things that we have done, God still reveals his grace unto us. And, and sometimes a painful grace, but rightfully so. A, painfully, a painful grace by which we grow and expand in ways that we wouldn't have formerly conceived. Okay, I know that's heavy, weighty stuff, but hopefully comforting. And like I said, one of these theological loci, these theological points at which your entire perception can change. So it's worth dwelling on. Any thoughts, questions, comments, disagreements? I see a couple hands. Uh, You want to go ahead? That might be a good message for unbelievers that are complaining about suffering, uh, I think. I'm just... This crossed my mind that because I have friends, you know, in this situation, and I try to point them to God, and you know, they don't entertain that idea. It's mm-hmm. like, well, the next time I hear of suffering, it might be like, well, those are designed to draw you to God or to bring you to God or something yeah. like that. Yeah. I, I just thinking out loud here. Yeah, exactly right. And now, so your mileage may vary, and of course, C.S. Lewis is great when he says pain is God's megaphone. And that's the kind of message we want to present to people when they're rebelling against God, when they're in unbelief, that kind of thing. So, of course, it can also illustrate how it is that unbelievers are incapable. I think this was Chemnitz earlier in our reading, how unbelievers are capable of truly good works because they can't receive cross and affliction and faithfulness. So it's like, I just want this to stop right? That's their response. And if God is imposing upon this, it makes me hate him all the more. It makes me more angry at him, right? So it's the flesh rebelling against the very call of God to come home, the very megaphone of God that says, hey, would you please wake up and return to me? Whereas then Christians who, of course, are justified extranos outside of ourselves, but are sanctified intranos, given a regenerate being, a new man within, we begin to be able to do those truly good works. 
that if you, from an unbeliever standpoint, from a fleshly standpoint, are miracles and miraculous. That we would actually love God as he afflicts us, and then even go a step further, love God because he afflicts us, and love the affliction itself. Now, sometimes that's a bridge too far, and I get it. The author of Hebrews even goes that way. Uh, nobody enjoy, no, no son enjoys the discipline of his father while it's happening. But afterward, one recognizes. And so, too, our experience is frequently with God that we don't enjoy the discipline while it's happening, but months, years, decades later, we can look back and see what he was up to and give him thanks. I'm just pressing the envelope here, and I'm not trying to do so in any way that, to scandalize anyone. I'm just trying to press the envelope that if you know that that's his M.O., if you know that that's his fatherly graciousness and goodness and how he works, you can always, at minimum, know, I don't see it, but it's there. I don't feel it, but it's there. I'm not ready to wrap my head around this whole thing, but I know that one day I will be able to. Yes, I saw, please. I think of this analogy if it applies. If you're chosen to be on the football team, expect mm-hmm. a lot of uh, what challenges and trials. Yeah. And, but it's, it's a great game. Yeah, yeah, it's a great example. I mean, if you, yeah, football's, football's great because uh, if you don't want to suffer, you'll be very comfortable on the bench. Ha! <laughs> ah. So God calls us to that suffering, which is a kind of glory and a kind of, uh, I mean, there's utility in suffering, of course, because as we suffer, we can help others who, are, who suffer. As we're comforted, we can comfort them with the comfort by which we are comforted. I'm quoting Paul here, basically, or paraphrasing. But there's joy in suffering, even apart from all utility. And that is... Uh, to, to use, again, Paul's language, the recognition that we are living sacrifices. To endure cross and affliction in faithfulness is worship. It's worship of the highest order. It has value in and of itself, even if it doesn't profit anyone or profit anything. It is worship unto the one who deserves and is worthy of all worship. Now, please. I was going to ask... Uh, Am I correct in saying that, you know, God's family, he doesn't give up on us. But our nuclear earthly family, uh, are we to demonstrate that same not to give up on those in our family and be uh, nowhere to pray for their salvation? There's a verse that says, don't cast uh, your pearls before swine. Where do we... Yeah, it's um, no general advice is going to fit there. Obviously, we can, we can pray for those who have apostatized or don't believe or whatever the case may be. But we recognize that I, I've said as much as I can say right now, and that door's been closed. I have to wait for an opportunity to be able to say something else. So that, that's a frequent occurrence. Yeah. It's difficult to navigate. There's no good advice there. It's... Um, Art, not science. There are certain principles that apply, of course. But in general, that's the art of vocation. God's called you to that person. Uh, 
be bold, but be wise, give a defense for the hope that is within you. Um, there may be a time to, if, if only temporarily, wipe the dust from your feet, not cast your pearls before swine, etc. Um, recognize that by bringing this up, it's only going to ruin the Thanksgiving lunch. So going to just sit and wait for a better opportunity to speak the gospel. Yeah, please. Yeah, Pastor, since you swerved uh, back into athletics again from uh, last Sunday. Paula led us there, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I thought I would comment. uh, I loved your analogy about the, you know, how players kind of discipline each other, you know, when one gets out of line a little bit, Uh you know, you can get hit pretty hard. But one of the best examples of that, I was thinking about it after class, is the brushback pitch that's administered by the pitcher of a baseball team Mm. that may not be the one that was offended Mm -hmm. or got the, the, you know, uh, uh, but he's the enforcer for the rest of his team. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing like a hundred mile an hour fastball (laughs) (laughs) that's kind of coming at your head. Uh, So I thought of that, but I do have a comment to make too. Um, I don't think you can take this in isolation from the standpoint the sacrament is so important to come alongside what we're talking about because it it kind of educates you uh, subtly to the fact that God forgives you all the time. You're in total state of grace, total forgiveness, total being reinstated all the time. And the sacrament does all that at the same time that you're going through this rough spot. So it's really, I think it's special that when you're going through this, to stay in church, take the sacrament, and... um, Yeah. Yeah, at the center, it writes the conscience. Right, good way to put it, yeah. Yeah, and, and in that sense, like biblically creates in us a clean heart, renews in us a right spirit. But along with that, it strengthens us and it gives us joy. And those are maybe the two, I mean, you can use different language, different language, different words, but those two concepts are inherent in bread, which is for strength. His body is our strength. His um, body is our body. We are his body. That's what it means to be his church and to be one with him. But yeah, bread is for strength. And so we're receiving not only the forgiveness of our sins, not only the writing of our conscience, but strength for what goes ahead. And then the wine is joy. That's what wine is. It's to gladden the hearts of men. That's why God made it. And so to receive not only the writing of our conscience, but joy and a foretaste of that joy that is to come. So this is, by the way, here's a tangent for you all, but this is where in the uh, small catechism it says um, fasting and other bodily preparation are uh, certainly fine outward training, etc., etc. But what is that really talking about? It's talking about the practice that was very common in the Lutheran church up until recently of after your uh, evening meal on Saturday, you don't eat anything until you have the Lord's Supper. So you fasted, that's as part of your bodily training, that's what the catechism is actually referring to, in order to take the Lord's Supper. 
Now, you're going to have all the benefits of fasting, spiritual, psychological, physical, etc. But I can assure you it's a different experience on an empty stomach when you take that sip from the chalice. Because even that one little sip just instantly relaxes your shoulders, (laughs) gladdens your heart, fills you with joy. And so that's that's a blessing that we're wont to miss out on. But it is an important aspect of Holy Communion. So to your point, that's why the Church Fathers would call it the medicine of immortality, because not only is it the writing of the conscience and the bringing of our, of our central beings back into reconciliation in line with God, but then it's a strengthening from the soul out and joy from the soul out, all poured into us that it might flow out of us, you know. That's, and that's the evidence, too, just even when you take the Lord's Supper, it's put into your lips so that as soon as you speak, as soon as you open your lips to speak, there's Christ to your neighbor, Christ to the world. And that's, the, that's one of the reasons why God made the sacrament in that way. It's all upon your lips so that when you, oh, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. So I'm full on with you, Bob, and I'm just trying to expand a little bit and just give a little uh, contour there to how it is that the sacrament especially can affect us and help us in times of onfectung or tentatio. So one more tangent on that, if this is of interest, I can go further, but I'll just mention it briefly, that Luther, and thus the Lutheran tradition, and he's kind of building on a more ancient tradition. It's not like he just came up with this out of thin air. But Luther popularized for us the threefold way in which one becomes or is developed into a theologian. And that includes uh, oratio, which is prayer, meditatio, uh, which is meditation on the word and truths of God, and uh, tentatio, which is suffering. And so, you know, as Luther says, oratio you can affect. You can choose when to pray. <laughs> uh, meditatio, you can choose when to meditate. But tentatio is largely out of your hands. I mean, you can do some self-imposed disciplines. You can give alms. You can fast. You can do these kinds of things. Um, you can do what, you, what is necessary to quell the flesh and get it under your dominion. And all of that's well and good. But the profound tentatio, the profound temptation, onfectung, cross, trial, is passively received. It's something God chooses for you and imposes upon you. And that's where your theology is really born. It's kind of the, well, it's like the crucible uh, of your theology. So that whatever you had right in oratio and meditatio remains and is refined. Whatever you didn't have right is consumed uh, in the fires of tentatio, the fiery trial Peter talks about that we shouldn't be surprised that we must endure as God's people. Right? So this life, I might be quoting C.S. Lewis here again, I don't know, but this life is purgatorial. This life is a purgatory, a, a washing, a cleansing, a shaping, a conforming, a fiery trial through which we pass, being refined. Okay, so those three elements then uh, deepen our capacity for theology, our our ability to be theologians, um, conformed into the image of the great theologian, our Lord Jesus Christ, who exegetes the Father to us. All right, good to move on to six. Okay, 
Many earnest admonitions and exhortations are also drawn from this article. For example, when we despise the word of God and do not follow it and reject the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit, regarding which Luke says in chapter 7, verse 30, the Pharisees rejected the counsel of God against themselves. Likewise, if one is carried away by the vain opinion that he will be saved even without the word, neglecting and rejecting it, or when he finds in himself on the basis of the call and the beginnings of conversion, the signs of election, he believes that he will now henceforth be out of danger of losing salvation, even if he freely indulges and gives free rein to sins against conscience. Against those false and harmful opinions, this article teaches that God in his counsel before the foundation of the foundations of the world were laid, decreed regarding those that indeed were called but refused to come, that none of them would taste of his supper. Luke fourteen twenty four from Jesus' parable. Likewise, that the latter state of those who turn themselves away from the holy commandment and again involve themselves in sins to become entangled in sins would be worse than the former. 2 Peter 2.20 And in this simple way, that difficult article regarding the mystery of the eternal predestination of God can be profitably set forth and taught without disturbing consciences, as also Christ himself, over against high-flying speculations of reason, summarized the whole doctrine of predestination in a simple parable, Matthew 22, 2. Okay, so then not only do we have uh, not only do we have these five um, very positive reflections that flow out of the biblical teaching of election. But here in the sixth, we have certain admonitions, exhortations, warnings, etc. that flow forth from this article, not to presume upon one's election, not to presume upon the grace of God, um, but to recognize that um, there is a hidden counsel of God and a hidden wrath of God upon those who do reject him and turn away from his calling. Many are called, few are chosen in the language of Jesus. Okay, ready to go on to 185 or is there anything rattling around still? All right. Okay, 185. But what will you reply to these objections? With God there is a certain and definite number of elect to which none can be added and from which none can be subtracted. Likewise, that the word of God is preached purely in some places and others not, and that some are hardened against hearing the word, but others are converted. And of the fallen, some are raised again, others are given over to a reprobate mind. Boy, that's just about all the thorny issues. What's the answer? The simplest and soundest way of all to respond to this, to respond is this that we should distinguish between the things that God has revealed to us in the word of his secret counsel 
and that he wants us to know, and the things that he wanted to be unsaid and hidden regarding that mystery, and that he has reserved for his knowledge and understanding alone. Let us learn, embrace, and follow the things that have been revealed in the word. So here's really the key then. If there is a definite number of the elect, none to which none can be added, from which none can be subtracted, okay, then what is the role of preaching the gospel? That's like the kind of the mental conundrum that comes to mind. What is the purpose of the so-called Great Commission? Okay, that the word is preached purely in some places and not in others. Why is that? Doesn't God will all men to be saved? And likewise, um, following that thought, some are hardened against hearing the word, but others are converted. Did they somehow resist less? No, the scriptures don't say that. So why? Why is it that some believe and others don't? And then to deepen that question, why is it that some who believe fall away and then come to faith again? And why is it that some who believe fall away, and never return to faith again? What is the answer to all of these questions? And the answer is, the Bible doesn't say. The Bible doesn't give us the why. We have to be content with that. This is what Kenneth is talking about when he, he says that God reserved for his knowledge and understanding alone and so we must learn and embrace and follow the things that have, that have been revealed in the Word. But as, in regards to these other things, they're unsaid, they're hidden, God knows we don't. In fact, our reason is prohibited from knowing. Because as we try to reason through answers to that, we end up contradicting something that is said in His plain Word. God knows how to hide things from us. Okay, so then top of 95, and just reiterating that Chemnitz points us to what the Word of God does say. That's what we should latch on to. What he doesn't say, we shouldn't attempt to speak or answer. Thus far we have spoken of those things, namely those things revealed in the Word. But we ought not curiously try to look with our speculations and reasonings into the things that God wants to be hidden and that he has reserved for himself alone. But leave them to the knowledge of God and simply and firmly cling to the revealed word. Doubtless then, God from eternity must certainly foresaw, foreknew, and still knows who of the called would believe and who not, and who of the converted would persevere and who not. Their definite number is doubtless also very well known to God, and divine foresight and foreknowledge cannot fail. But since God wanted to reserve that mystery to his wisdom and did not reveal any of it in his word, and much less commanded that it be explored by our thoughts, but rather earnestly forbade it, Romans 11.33, it is not for us to go into this matter with curious speculations and cunning conclusions of reason, but obediently and reverently rest in the revealed word of God, to which he himself directs us. 
All right, very good, and very much channeling Luther in bondage of the will here. Chemnitz not doing much different if you remember our study of that text. Let me pause, see if you have any reflections, otherwise we'll carry on. We've got two. Just want to make sure that I have the correct understanding of the Lutheran. If a Lutheran, you know, obviously he was a member of church, was baptized, and then fell away for a few years, then came back. By taking the sacrament again, would that restore his position with God? Is that, is that understanding correct? Uh, what you said is not wrong. Um, that's true, yeah. So if someone falls away from the church and then returns, before they take the sacrament, they're likely to have a conversation with the pastor. Right. Um, they're likely already to... Remember in the prodigal son, he's a son of the father, but he apostatizes from his father and uh, goes off and does his thing. He comes to himself and returns. So before he even gets to the Father, he's come to himself and return. I mean, God can see that and can know that, right? So let's say the person died before they could have Holy Communion. Would they be reconciled to God? Yes. You see, that's the only difference I'm trying to articulate. The culmination of that would be to be received back, just like the prodigal was received back at the table of his father, and the fattened calf was slaughtered. That's the goal, the end goal of this reconciliation. When a son who has apostatized returns, that he be restored to the table fellowship of his father. As a pastor, if you feel someone was really wasn't repentant, yeah, would you have the authority to say, "I don't sure you're quite ready to take the sacrament again"? Well, the short answer is yes. Um, there's a longer answer there, but by and large, pastors in pastoral care, we have, we have to go what comes out of a man's mouth. We can't cease the secret places of the heart, and we shouldn't really attempt to. Of course, if what's coming out of a man's mouth is manifestly contradicted by his ongoing behavior, then I can certainly call that out as hypocrisy and say, oh, this looks like impenitence to me. And what Christ is offering at his table is forgiveness. You don't want forgiveness. So why would you come make a mockery of this? You want approval, not forgiveness. So you can't make a mockery of this. And if I let you, it would only be to your great harm and detriment. I'm certainly not going to let you do that. Yeah, so that would be within the pastoral office. And ultimately, that would need to go... um, Again, depending upon the circumstance, we need to go to the broader church because these are serious matters and matters for the whole body to consider in in an ultimate and overarching sense. It's not a pastor lording it over anyone individually or a pastor thinking, you know, I'm the sheriff of this town. I decide who's going to commune and who's not. That's not the view I want to give. It's just in these acute pastoral circumstances, there is a time and a place for that. As far as, as we go through life, we run into negative things and that kind of thing. Um, I find that when I run into things that 
I react negatively to. It makes me think more deeply about what I really believe, mm-hmm. and it strengthens me to go up against what is is bad, mm-hmm. either in word or deed and that kind of thing. So it all works together, whatever our experiences are. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Those times where somebody else makes you mad but irrationally mad, probably you've got to do a little introspection because there's something actually going on there that you haven't thought through. In one way, shape, or form, you're actually more mad at yourself for having not thought it through than you are at them for exposing that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's go a little further. So I think we left off that biggest paragraph on page 95. Is that right? Or did I finish that? Hmm. Yeah, I think that's where we are. In the same way, God knows without all doubt. In fact, he has determined for each one the time and hour of both call and conversion. But since he did not make that known to us, it behooves us constantly to continue in the word and commit to God the specific details of timing. Likewise, when we see God give his most holy word to some kingdom or province, but at the same time not bestow it on another people, likewise take it away from one people but grant it longer to another, and that this one is hardened, blinded, and given over to a reprobate mind, but that one fallen into the same fault is converted to God, etc. It is not that we should try to pry into and ferret out the reason for that with our reason. And Paul has set certain limits for us in that kind of questions, how far we ought to go, while he wants us, on the other hand, namely in considering those that perish, to acknowledge the just judgments of God and just punishments of sin. For God makes some nations and persons a just example of his severity, showing what we collectively and individually have deserved by reason both of our nature corrupted by sin and of ingratitude toward his most holy word, And that for this purpose, that the rest should live the more carefully in the fear of God and learn to acknowledge and praise his pure and undeserved grace in vessels of mercy. Boy, it makes you, uh, makes me long for periods, like longing for home. Ooh, some periods and some commas, but especially periods. A semicolon or two would be nice. Sorry, you have to bear with my reading here. All right, just to finish out the paragraph. For though we all fall into that same filth of sins, no injustice is done to those who suffer the just punishment of wickedness. In others whom God gives the light of his word, enlightens, converts, preserves, and saves, the Lord commands and makes known his great grace and mercy which reaches us without, in fact, despite all our merit. Okay, so there's a minor, a minor point that Chemnitz raises that's worth being aware of 
but I think there's a danger here too. The minor point that Chemnitz raises that's worth being aware of is the baseline of God's justice, that he owes no one anything. So if the gospel is here and not there, we're wont to say, well, God is unjust. That's to have the whole thing flipped upside down, as it were. The fact that the gospel is here and not nowhere is not a matter of his injustice, but a matter of his mercy, even if that mercy is particular. Can I not do with my own things what I want to do with my own things? Can I I not be gracious to whom I want to be gracious? So that is a helpful frame through which we can think through some of these conundrums. Now, I think the caveat or the, the warning that I would put in here is that God doesn't need us to justify him. And the attempt to do so is really at counter purposes with a lot of what God's up to anyway. So the whole idea that we would try to make God look just in our minds or in the minds of other people already carries within it this presupposition that we have a right to judge him. And that we are postured correctly in our assessment of whether or not he's just. Which, of course, both of these are wrong. God is God, not me. Who am I to judge him? Okay, so this idea of defending God uh, can become real toxic real fast and it counter purposes also to what God wants to do on a deeper level, which Luther explains in The Bondage of the Will. God will not be the God of the philosophers. He will be the God revealed in Christ Jesus, not in human wisdom, wisdom or speculations or rational conclusions, but only in the revelation of Christ. So you're not going to rationalize your way into a gracious God or a comprehension of a gracious God. You'll rationalize your way into a God who is indistinguishable from the devil. That's Luther's point in bondage of the will. All right, so bottom of 95. Yes, we're going to do it. If we proceed so far in meditating on this article and stop within the stated limits... We shall walk in the altogether sure and truly royal way. For it is written regarding this mystery, Hosea 13.9, Israel, your destruction is of yourself. In me alone is your help. And there's just a great biblical text that accords with that. If someone's in hell, it's because they insisted upon being there. If someone's in heaven, it's because God put them there. Your destruction is of yourself, in me alone is your help. Kenwitz continues, but if some things are loftier and range beyond those Pauline bounds, we should remember with Paul to lay a finger on the lips and exclaim, O man, who are you that you answer back to God? Romans 9.20. And that's exactly the sentiment I was trying to express a moment ago. For that great apostle teaches us by his example that we neither can nor should investigate everything in this article. For when he had spoken at length on the basis of the revealed word of God about this mystery, and when he finally came to the things that God has reserved for his hidden wisdom, he cuts the discussion short and concludes with such an exclamation. 
and you can go look for the full context here, Romans 11, 33 through 34, uh, reads, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how past finding out are his ways. So again, don't just gloss over this because you've heard it a million and one times. How unsearchable are his judgments. We can't, decide, we can't come to know why he's judged this people and not that people or this person and not the other. It's unsearchable. And how past finding out are his ways. We're not even going to find out the ways and mechanisms by which God thinks through these things or plans or purposes them. He's hidden them from us. So how unsearchable are his judgments, how past finding out are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, etc.? Or who has been a counselor to him? Namely, beyond and above that which he has revealed to us in his word, etc. So I think a fantastic way to end this teaching on election, where our hearts and minds desire to know more, we must stop in humility at the bounds that scriptures, the bounds that God himself has set. All right? Anything, uh, anything you want to talk about when it comes to election? Predestination. All right? The Lord be with you. <laughs>